You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, this has been a podcast that I've actually been waiting patiently to do for a very long time, even though the architect that I'm currently interviewing has always been on call for any of my questions or requests. It gives me great pleasure to say hello after her house to Fuilinku from Oof Architecture. Hello, Elizabeth. This is, I will just admit that we forgot to press record. So we're, we've done 20 minutes of chatting and now we've really got to start again. Well, we're well bit. warmed up. We're warmed we? up. We're ready to go. <laughs> and I think what I wanted to let the audience know is that ever since, oh, it was probably before 2015, maybe around 2012 or 2013, you entered into our awards or you were at one of the ceremonies. And ever since then, we've collaborated on a number of things. And some of those things have been you obviously designing beautiful brick houses and buildings, but you've also come and spoken to our members at our roadshow breakfasts and you've even come to Adelaide. And I think <laughs> you can admit... I think Brick took me to Adelaide when I'd never been there. So I am grateful for that because I did feel very embarrassed that I'd never been there before. And all of our South Australians would know how much it is such a brick city. So we're glad that we, I guess, embellished your <laughs> knowledge on that. But we also did, for a couple of our awards nights, a tour of Richmond and Surrounds of all the beautiful mm. brick buildings. And you did that for us as well. And now here you are on the podcast. Um, we were worried last time you might have COVID, but you don't. <laughs> yes. So we're here. So before we get talking a little bit more about bricks and your buildings, maybe you could just describe your childhood and where you grew up. Yeah, sure. I was born in Malaysia in a place called Georgetown in Penang that I think a lot of people um, in Australia may have heard of if, if they've heard of anything in Malaysia because it's a beach holiday town. So if you've actually been for holidays in Malaysia, quite likely you'll end up in Penang, a beautiful tropical sort of like beach island. But there was also an Australian Air Force base close by. So it's sort of been lurking in the back minds of I think Australians as a sort of exotic place that they might have heard the name of before. But it's a, yeah, it's a very interesting city. Penang was originally a British colony. I, see, um, I did not know that. But now yeah, so it's a colonial yeah. city and it's got beautiful colonial architecture as well as, you know, combinations of all sorts of things. And it's always been, you know, for hundreds of years, I guess the port part of the trading routes that went from Britain and India to China. Yeah. So everyone passed, like all sorts of people of all sorts of reasons, all sorts of trades sort of passed through there. Mm-hmm. And some people stayed, some people moved on. So as a result, it's always been this place which has been a melting pot, literally, of everything. So there are all sorts of different people there. There's sort of Chinese, Malaysians, Malaysian, mm. Indians, Indian, Chinese, European, whatever's. It's just all sorts of people from all different places. The food is fantastic because of that. Mm. So the influence all from all through Southeast Asia sort of coming through that area as well as, you know, European influences, Indian, obviously, Chinese, obviously, you know, it's that is why it is a food mecca. And I think I was we started talking yes. about got lost in the delights of hawker food before, like the hawker stall kind of culture there. Yeah. 
And that, that is the it's street amazing. food. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, the street yeah. food is fantastic. And I think quite a few people go there for an eating holiday. Wow. Well, that and sounds good to I me. Would, I would do that myself. <laughs> and if you met any people from Penang, they do, and, you know, this is someone else sort of mentioned this the other day, you'll spend every meal talking about what you're going to eat next or what you ate before. So what are your three most recommended dishes if we've got people thinking about it? Uh, well, if you're in Penang, I think one of the things that you should try is what they call the uh, Penang laksa or an Assam laksa, okay. which is not like the laksa that people get here. What people commonly call laksa here is actually what in Malaysia is called curry mee, which is basically just a curry soup, kind of like noodle. That's commonly what everyone thinks it is. Right. But laksa in Penang is actually quite different. But it's also another like really yummy soup noodle dish. So it's made from rice noodles, but it's in a fish and seafood broth with ginger flour and pineapple and all sorts of other sort of like fresh, there's a fresh zingy sort of herby citrusy seafood type of soup. It is delicious. Oh. Yeah, mm. That's always good. Chaco okay. is always good. Ice kacang, which is dessert mm-hmm. of shaved ice. With condensed milk and red beans and oh well actually you can choose your toppings but rose syrup yes, what we were talking about before and condensed milk yes. <laughs> so anything with like too much sugar is not enough goes on top of the shaved ice and it is fantastic in a hot sticky penang day it is a child's paradise delight and when you're growing up, were there lots of siblings, lots of family? or? Well, my particular family is relatively modest. I've got one brother and one sister. Mm. But my parents had huge families. Mm. So the, one of them has 10 brothers and sisters. The other one has nine brothers and sisters. So I had uncles and aunts and cousins like everywhere growing up in, in Malaysia. And although my family lived on the mainland, about you know an hour or so sort of away from Penang in a town called Alostar, every weekend we spent in Penang at my grandfather's house, which was the great patriarchal sort of clan house. And with just uncles and aunts and cousins and just like, you know, mayhem every weekend with this huge family. It's fantastic. Well, I mean, imagining there must have been lots of kids. What sort of games were you playing or were you playing or were you just... Oh, I'm not sure what we were. Just all sorts of things and nothing. Like, you know, the way the kids just... Well, I mean, the fantastic thing was that it was quite a big house, as in with a big garden. And so our parents would just be like, go. Yeah. <laughs> and the kids, there'd be an army of kids rampaging around the house and we'd make up games as we went along. So it's any, you know, all fun things like poking each other with sticks or hide and seek or treasure hunts or yeah. like whatever else. So we did all sorts of things. We were like, I mean, we did dangerous things every now and then. I do remember falling from a first floor stair oh. off a landing because okay. I decided I was an astronaut. Yeah. You know, gravity wasn't really part of my understanding of, of things at that time, but I was wearing a space helmet, so oh. which is maybe why I can still talk today. today. <laughs> so when did you come to Australia and, and what yeah. prompted the move, I guess? Uh, my parents migrated to Australia in, I think it was about 1978, so mm-hmm. I was about 10. Yep. And part of the reason why they moved was that, you know, even though Malaysia is a fantastic place in many ways, it also does have, you know, considerable issues, particularly around race. And not long after I was born, there were huge anti-Chinese riots in Malaysia. Right. Yeah. And I think that was what would have been one of the key reasons why my parents... I think started making plans to actually go somewhere else at that time. And there'd been riots before that. So it's one of those, I was going to say it's a cultural issue, but in a lot of ways it's not. I think it's something that's whipped up 
for political reasons. Yeah. But anyway, there, there are sort of issues with the, I guess, minority sort yes. of ethnic groups in Malaysia and there's this conflict that's been, I think, whipped up by the government basically. Yeah, I, about 18 months ago I read Lee Kuan News from Third World First, yeah. which is obviously about Singapore. Mm. And I'd studied Singapore when I was at school, but it was it was eye-opening to me to understand all those different minority groups yeah. that were also on the fringes of Singapore. Yes. And he was sort of dealing with a lot of those issues and, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, it's part of the colonial history as well as sort of like general history of that area where, you know, Chinese like from China would have been sort of coming through all those areas in Southeast Asia, you know, forever. Yep. And so, and in terms of, I guess, those communities establishing in other people's countries, you know, mm. other people's lands, I guess there's always been, you know, conflict between like the people that were always there and the people that sort of like moved in and then the dynamics of those things. And then the British colonial history, I think, didn't help because what they were very good at was actually seeing where those ethnic conflicts were and elevating one group above the other group because they could get their loyalty from this group. That's right. You know, yeah. against the other group, the sort of thing. So there's a lot of those dynamics there. Anyway, the sum result is that my parents decided to migrate. Yes. And they decided to come to Australia because before that, one of the great programs that had been running in Southeast Asia was what they called the Colombo Plan, which was the scholarship system oh, wow. for students to come from Southeast Asia to come and study in Australia, sort of at universities. So there was a sort of a link Okay. with Australia yeah. for, I think, quite a lot of people in Southeast Asia. So not necessarily through the Colombo plan, but some of my relatives and my dad did actually study in Australia yeah. or in Brisbane in particular. Yes. You know, they went to Queensland University in the 50s. <laughs> One of my uncles studied at Melbourne Uni. And the stories I heard from them about what Australia was like in the 50s is pretty amazing. Wow. You know, being Chinese was really strange in 1950s Australia. Yeah. They said people used to just almost like drop their bags in the street to stare at them walking across the road. Mm. They were so exotic. Mm. But yeah, anyway, I guess within my family, then there was this link to Australia. Yes. So migrating here was sort of made sense to them yeah. because we had some family here already. Some of my aunts also had come to high school here. So there was this sort of a link here. Yeah, yeah. there was some, some familiarity. Yes. And then what were your earliest memories of, of Brisbane? I mean, that's yeah. where you spent the first part of your time in Australia. Yes. Oh, Brisbane is, I thought Brisbane actually is a fantastic place to grow up. I think when we were there, it, Brisbane was a lot smaller then. It yeah. was definitely still at that time. Joe Bielke Peterson was still Premier. It had been for decades already before we got there, probably. But it did definitely feel like that small town right. that Brisbane was, which Brisbane is not anymore by no. by any means. But it did have that that little bit of an outpost kind of like town at that time. We grew up in the suburbs. It was fantastic suburbs. I had lots of friends that lived in the area, also other family in these beautiful sort of hills. And I do always remember the beautiful Queenslander houses. My parents, of course, refused to get one. What did they get? Because the maintenance oh, on a timber house, like, they oh, just thought it was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? They got a nice brick house in the suburbs oh, as a result because they go. thought that would be, You're we're going to get established in, you know, in Brisbane, we need to have a solid sort of forever house. Yeah. <laughs> so um, they went with cream brick. Cream brick. Cream brick in the suburbs. Uh, and Pui, what stands out to you as the differences in Australia coming from Malaysia? Well, I think as a kid, when I first came here, I was astounded by the school system because going to school in Malaysia was very full on. Really? It was really full on. My parents actually sent me to a Chinese school 
So there are normal sort of state schools and stuff that would be Malay-based. And my father in particular was very keen for me to go to a Chinese school so that I would be learning Chinese, you know, learning Mandarin and English yeah. as a second language. Although I've got to say, as far as languages are concerned, like we spoke English, I've spoken English forever. Because in Malaysia, I mean, this is going back to that idea of it being a melting pot place, like we were surrounded by people from everywhere. Yes. So very often English was the connector. The connector, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, you go, well, I don't really speak Hindi, but, you know, my friend down the road, you know, they blah, blah, blah. But everyone would sort of speak English at some point. So I already knew English, so that's fine. But I think my father in particular just had a strong idea about trying to maintain, I guess, a Chinese heritage. Sure. But the culture of education was quite different. So I went to school. This is even when I was quite you know, young. And when I finished school, I would go to tutoring. Oh, wow. So even this was when I was very young, like as in grade one, two, three okay. kind of thing. Yeah. So, but that was just considered normal. Okay. And then when I came to Australia, it was like, oh, is that it? <laughs> or like, I <laughs> can just like done. go home and like have fun. <laughs> like I'd always do my homework because I'm spotty, but that was not that big a deal. Yeah, so the actual life was more chilled out and relaxed and there was less emphasis on things like rote learning, I guess. Okay. You know, so we didn't have to sit. We used to, in Malaysia, the teachers loved to get us to sit down and recite times tables Table. and things like that. Mm. We didn't quite do that so much. Although I must say, I was quite advanced in maths <laughs> compared to the other kids here when I first arrived. Yeah. But that may have made me lazy because I think I just cruised. <laughs> I didn't stay ahead. I just cruised Cruise. until they caught up and then went, oh, no. So during that time at school, like what made an impression on you that related to where you are now, architecture? Was there anything? I'm not sure that there was. I guess maybe more in high school there was, you know, we had actually some great art teachers and art facilities and I loved art. But part of that also was they teach us the history of architecture as well, which mm -hmm. sort of just, I don't think at the time I was particularly interested in it. I was inter interested in all of art history, but just having that sort of in the background as well, like there's a familiarity, I guess, with, with architectural history that was kind of woven into just the history of everything. Yes. That because I sort of did it at school, it's just sort of in my understanding of like world history is actually architectural history as well. I'll link it back to these things. So there's sort of some of that. And also sometimes I think of the old state school, Indrapilly State School that I went to in Brisbane when we first came to Australia, which was just your typical state school, sort of like timber school buildings. But the standard model there was that the classrooms were upstairs and then underneath was just all open. Mm -hmm. And so, which was sort of like those Queenslander houses in a way. So playing on, on the stairs, running up and down the stairs, but also in the undercrofts. So in this beautiful sort of cool shade, mm -hmm. you know, on a hot Brisbane day and just running around like mad in those timber buildings. I still remember those really well. And I, I still love those, you know, the idea of those places yeah. that you're sort of inside, outside, there were no sort of corridors at such. You waited on the veranda before you sort of went into the classroom. So you were always sort of outside, inside. Yes. Which I love that. Yeah. Unfortunately, you can't do that so much in Melbourne. Well, you, we've just seen how much you try. So. Yeah. And yes, we have an outside, outside kitchen. Outside kitchen. And we're here on a day at 36 degree heat. It's beautiful and cool because it's a brick. Correct. Building. This is a triple brick building. Yes. It's a very, very old block of flats. So, yes brick forever <laughs> so for me you finish high school and then what happens yeah well going to university was not an 
it was not an option. Okay. We just did. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> because it's a classic sort of, I think, Asian migrant expectation from the parents. Like, you don't choose whether you want to go to university or not. That's just what you're doing. And then, of course, all through school, I guess the, it was the classic thing of like, well, of course, you would do academically well. They'd expect nothing less yes. than top grades. So in some ways, that kind of, I guess, that sort of parental pressure was still always there. But it meant that you could pick and choose. Okay. I guess so. you had those choices of what you wanted to do at uni. So what did you pick? Look, I ended up picking architecture. And I say ended up because I think maybe unlike some other architects who had a clearer vision of what they wanted to do before, that's why they chose to do architecture at university level. I think I ended up not so much choosing architecture as crossing off the other things and that was what was left. Because oh, <laughs> I didn't want to do medicine, which is always the prime candidate for like an Asian family. It's like, of course, you're going to do medicine, which I didn't quite make the grades. I just slightly was off. And the next best thing that they thought would be great would be doing dentistry. Wow. So not interested. <laughs> Sorry, dentists out there. It's important work. Someone's going to do it, but it wasn't going to be me. But it is extraordinary the responses I've had to that question because not everyone is as planned out as you think. And yes. yeah, for some people they chose it by default or and you yes. know, brilliant. So Yeah, and it's and left over and I think in some ways I discovered what it was when I started it. I was yes. so clueless. What was that experience like for you at university? Was it a positive one or I think it was positive. I mean I certainly enjoyed it. I don't think the thing is I don't think I was a very good student. I think really after my yeah, so it feels like you peaked early. You peaked when yeah, you were well, five years old. I know. You kind of go, well, maybe because I worked so hard at school. Yeah. I got to uni and suddenly the school, the formal sort of school structure sort of fell away a bit. Yeah. And clearly I hadn't developed too much or enough self-discipline and I had a great time at uni. I loved, but I don't think my studies were especially of a high standard, although I met lots of great people that I really loved. And so... But I did enjoy it. Yeah. I guess that's the thing. I mean, and I was also massively stressed by it. Yeah. Because the, I mean, this is probably what a lot of the architects will have said as well, like the sort of learning structure that you go into into is the sort of design studio type culture where you're given projects to work on, design projects, from the very first day. And then also from the very first day, you have a deadline, a due date, and that's when you make a presentation to the entire class of what you've done. Mm. So there was this constant thing of like, there was no hiding in the background of, oh, dog ate my homework, I've got nothing to show, or, oh, it's not good enough or whatever. It's just like, shut up and do it. You know, and that sort of discipline of constantly, whatever you're up to, you to get up and talk about it and then take the um, feedback kind or unkind from your lecturers and tutors other students sometimes and actually learn to deal with that when I think most people find that extremely stressful especially when you're starting out it's very it's pretty full-on yeah and did you travel at all whilst you were studying during that time not in my early years at uni because I just didn't have any money (laughs) to do it so I didn't go I think I went overseas for the first time when I was about 25 so I go to Europe for the first okay. time. I sort of like travelled, I guess, on my own. And then when you finished uni, what did you do? What did you, what was one of your first Well, it jobs? took me a rather a long time to do uni because I was one of those nightmare students as far as the university was concerned who would, I did one and a half years and then I deferred oh, for wow. a year 
And you so went I worked to all in parties, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, worked in it. But the good thing was I worked in an architect's office. At okay. least I had my head screwed on enough to do something sensible. So I actually knew what the work was. Okay. And then went back and did another year and a half. And then I moved into state. So I changed universities and worked down here for a while and then went overseas for a while traveling and worked overseas for a little while and then sort of came back and then sort of finished my degree so I I think it took me about nine years wow to do what is already a long degree yes (laughs) but you wanted to inhale it all so when you went overseas I'm just curious Mm. as an architectural student where did you go and what did you notice of course the the grand architectural tour yes which after you know, sitting in architectural history lectures for years um, and looking at all these pictures of buildings to actually be able to go to these places. It was very exciting. Mm-hmm. So I went to Rome, which was amazing and which I still love, mm-hmm. um, but travelled around in Italy and I think it was around the world trip. So I was in Germany, in France, in the UK and, you know, and also I went to the United States as well, sort of on the way back, so this big Sort of like world tour, I guess of the Western world, Mm. let's say. So we didn't really go to Asia sort of on that trip. It was very exciting and it was very, I guess also a a real revelation in terms of just realising how much difference there is between what you think you know about a place, Mm. what you can learn in a book, what you can learn in sort of like photographs and images and what the place actually is, you know, actually being there. And I think that has still always sort of stuck with me, like just the difference between those things, like Mm. the physical experience of actually really being somewhere Mm. as opposed to just representations of that, which, you know, technology is pretty amazing these days and the amount of information you can get on the net is astounding. But being there, like there's just, there's nothing like it. That's true. You mentioned that you were working for an architectural firm and did you continue working for them once you finished? Actually, I worked in quite a few places by the time I graduated because, yeah, there was the time that I um, stopped studying for a little while, had it deferred, worked for a, a firm in Brisbane, Sicato mm-hmm. McGrain. I wonder if they're still around. I should get in touch with them. Mm-hmm. I used to do a lot of colouring in for them. It was in the old days. This is before computer rendering. I used to actually use, yeah, listen up, kids, colour pencils. Well, colour pencils. Do you remember those carbon, the carbon copy things where you actually get to run it through? I think yes. I was trying to explain that, that to my children the other day. Things. Yes, and, and actually drawing, like drafting with yes. um, pencils and pens, which I've got to say, in a Queensland humid atmosphere, all the Queensland architects will identify with this, is the humidity is a nightmare. You know, on the tracing paper, paper. They, yeah. not only do you stick to it, but also if you accidentally leave an object on the drawing overnight and you come back the next morning, the whole sheet will have warped around it because it sucked in the moisture from the air. Yeah. You know, all that sort of stuff. The bad old days, actually. I'm happy to leave them behind. Okay. It was a nightmare, that stuff. <laughs> I'm so happy to work on computers. But, yeah, sort of worked in various places in Melbourne. Actually, the first office that gave me a position in Melbourne was McGoran Soon, who are actually called McGoran Giannini Soon now. But at the time, it was when I first came to Melbourne, it was in the middle of the recession in the 90s. And apparently at the time, it was like a quarter of architects were like working in sandwich shops or driving taxis and stuff. Like terrible, you know, so awful. And there were no jobs Mm. at all. And it took me ages. I I just went through the phone book because I didn't know anyone in Melbourne. And so I was very lucky to have got a position with that firm because they were fantastic. And I still have, you know, keep in touch with them today. And, you know, I feel really lucky because they're real mentors and 
Rob McGoran, who I still keep in touch with, is, you know, they really looked after their students there and saw the bigger picture of like the design world and the industry that they would be coming into and their role in sort of bringing up people sort of into the stuff. I mean, it's fantastic, really. Not always, not all places, you know, are that, you know, generous and and they were great. How did it, I guess, influence how your career shaped from there? Yeah, well, I think that sense of generosity and understanding of the big picture, I think, has always sort of stayed with me. Mm. Certainly, in the you know, the idea about like no matter what project you're working on, and this is like whether it's a chicken shop or a house or mm. a you know skyscraper or, or whatever, they're all part like of a bigger fabric of yes. everything. Mm. So not just build environment, but you know, cultural and social and like everything, all these networks sort of woven together is what the buildings are. And so they're not objects in their own right, you know, or it's not, yeah, it's not right to actually think of them as just sort of individual sculptures in their own universe. They're part of this like much larger world, you know, and I still think that. So no matter how small the project that you do or how big, it's still part of all of this sort Mm -hmm. of stuff. And then the understanding that is actually what makes good projects, I think. Mm. And how did you come to begin OOF? What led you to that? Man, most architects who have started their own practices will have come to this point, whereas you just don't want to ask anyone else whether something's okay anymore. (laughs) You just don't need a director's approval for what you're doing at some point and you just want to be captain of your own ship. No matter how small, (laughs) it doesn't matter if it's a dinghy as long as it's yours. And I think I got to the point where... Even though I'd I'd loved a lot of the officers that I worked with, I met so many fantastic people, you know, had the opportunity to be involved with fantastic projects, but I just like doing my own thing. Mm. Okay. Now, looking back on when you first started, is there a particular project that you look back and you think of it fondly or you want to cry or (laughs) all of the above? Yeah, I think some of the very early projects I still cringe about a bit because the I think when you're a young architect and you're just starting out, mm. it's the classic thing of like you get one project and you're trying to fit every bloody idea you ever had in the universe. <laughs> like in that one project, it's so stupid and it takes a while to get that out of your system. And I think some of my early jobs are like where you're just trying to push things too hard. They're too complicated. You're not understanding the parameters of what people need. You know, you're thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about them. Yep. You know, all that sort of thing that like you just can't get yourself sorted for a while, I think, because you're just so overexcited. About, I think that, you know, yeah, it's a common theme, what I've, what I've learned. Yes, it's just that. like overcomplicated, yeah. just thinking in the wrong way. And it takes a while to actually realise what I'm striving for is some sort of clarity mm. about seeing those things. Yeah. You know, and also that the client they are the reason why you can make the work. Mm. Like the work doesn't exist without them. Yeah. You can't design something without them. You know, and just realising sort of how valuable the client is, not in terms of like, yes, they pay the bills. I mean, yeah, yeah, we make a living sort of with clients, but it's also just as part of, I think, the creative process. You know, what a huge part they are, like responding to them. Yes, yes. You know, that, that is how the work, I mean, for me anyway, that is how the work is made. Mm. Like if I didn't have a client, there would be no project. Nothing mm. would happen. Like nothing would happen because mm. I'm not an artist. <laughs> so if we then move to Hello House, which mm. obviously caught our eye, and I think though at the time it was 
One of the best examples of corbling, although I have to put a preface on this because I think Mel Bright had started. Mel Bright for, did have a very nice building on that. Yes, yeah. and she has claimed that she started the trend. You continued <laughs> it in a loud way. But maybe just talk to us about how that came about. Yes, I do remember seeing Mel's project, but I think I might have seen it actually a little bit after. Mm. And the but there I'm not was suggesting you copied it. It's like, sorry, Mel. Yeah. <laughs> you are inspirational, but yes. not in that particular case. It was actually some Dutch work I remember you that I was looking at. Yeah. yeah, that there was, which I did eventually on my world. I did see sort of when I went on my first world trips, I, I did go to Holland. But the, you know, and well, this is another great place for brick tourism is the Netherlands, like amazing history of brickwork historic stuff to the contemporary stuff and the contemporary work is really beautiful mm. so there were a few of those um, contemporary Dutch buildings houses in particular that I, I loved and they used some of that corbeling mm. especially that sort of toothing at the corners yes. I love that mm-hmm. so I was so excited to have the chance to actually use it at Hello House but Hello House is um yeah so one in more more than even most projects I think was a stronger collaboration with the client because yeah. one of our clients, the artist, Rose Nolan, mm. and a lot of her work is about super graphics and huge fonts, sort of building size fonts, actually, that it's got to do with the form of the letters themselves as part of the graphic nature of it, as well as the message of what it says. But also what Rose was really interested in, which I loved as well, was the idea of sort of handcraft and handmaking things and, you know, brickwork in that case was just such a perfect marriage of those things because in making the super graphic it was still about the makingness of that particular material of bricks and the brick layer Mm. and the making of it by hand I guess you'd sort of look at it it's almost like a cartoony thing like you know this massive sort of text of hello but it's actually made you know very precisely by a person brick by brick you know in the most primal way the way that you know ancient buildings were ever done, like the technique has not been very different. I mean, no. obviously it can be refined, but yeah. it's not in principle different from what people would have done in ancient times, which I also love the idea. I mean, part of the reason why I love brick there as well, because it was sort of ancient, but also it was like pixelation as well in digital images. So that idea of little units of things that make up a larger sort of like pixelated image. So... You know, they had a lot of resonances of all those different things, which made it such a, it was like a great object in itself. Yeah. Did you choose the material or was that the client or was it a... No, I chose the material as a way of making hello, which is what Rose actually suggested, you know, why don't we just say hello? I mean, we'd been through all these different ways about how to make that wall, what it was supposed Mm -hmm. to do, what its role was and this and that and the other thing. And um, it was such a simple thing that she'd said that just solved every single problem that we had. It was fantastic. And so in terms of the brickwork and how that was done, there are all those things that we just you know, I just talked about, but also the neighbourhood she was in, you know, in, in the middle of Richmond. It's a brick neighbourhood, but it's all bricks of all different sorts. So there's, you know, 19th century sort of Victorian bricks. There's 1950s kind of cream brick down the road. There's classic 1970s kind of Bessa block mm-hmm. kind of number with the gum yeah. trees out the front. I think, yeah. I, I think you might have seen those. You know, so it's all these little masonry sort of experiments in that little neighbourhood. And this was our contribution to the bricks. I remember you telling me, because this is a cream brick, and it is now, well, a couple of years ago, mm. but you had a lot of algae problems with it. 
Yeah, it was the vanadium. Yeah, yeah, vanadium staining, staining coming through. And yeah, actually, this is where Mel Bright comes in yes. because Mel's project, I think, had a similar issue because they'd use also a very light brick mm-hmm. and they had with barrel. Yes. I think sort of developed a tech sheet. Right. Or, you know, started or had been developing a tech sheet about how to deal with the vanadium staining, which I was very grateful for because this green stuff, this bright green splodges were coming up on the brickwork and we're all just like, oh, my God, what is it? What's going on? The builder was freaking out. (laughs) But we solved um, it. Yeah, in terms of the cleaning regime, just made sure that, you know, it was using sort of mild cleaners, not going crazy. And ultimately what solved it was just letting it settle into the environment so that the balance of the moisture sort of around and in the brick sorted itself out so this stuff sort of stopped leaching through. Yeah, which was great having that technical information to sort of work with and to actually step back and just go, don't panic and don't start using crazy stuff because that actually exacibates the problem. Like if you you use, so it was actually great knowing, like not not to, don't (laughs) don't go crazy. We know that and often we get people called up when that's happened, you know, and then it's too late sometimes. You, after that, you won the category for Horbury Hunt Residential. Yeah. And Hooray! You, <laughs> and then you mm. also participated in our jury. I just wondered what's your perspective on the Think Brick Awards? Because you've sort of seen it from all angles. Yeah. The well, it was great fun to be on a jury, actually, because, well, the other jurors are such fun. Mm. There's a, they were fantastic people and it was really great being able to discuss architecture with other architects in a, I mean, in a critical way, because you're trying to evaluate projects and talk about what you think, which ones does which one better. But then also, I guess, in that discussion, trying to understand what, in terms of the other architects, like what they thought architecture should try to be mm. and what not. And what I actually found was interesting was that state by state, there was actually quite a different perspective on what architects thought work should be trying to do. And that's always interesting, like, you know, as an intellectual sort of like discussion, the priorities should be so different when in all other respects in Australia, you kind of go, well, you know, whether Australians are from Brisbane or Sydney or Perth or whatever, I mean, kind of the same, really. And it's just small things that are different, like details about maybe some language things or whatever, but there's not even a different accent. You know, that we don't have differences the way that Europeans have differences, for example. But it is interesting because I think I didn't know any better when I was pulling the jury together. And I think one of the things about our jury and the awards themselves is that with the Institute of Architects Awards, as I understand it, it's sort of like a regional state and then goes to national. Mm. Whereas all of our projects yes. are all in always the same national. Thing. Yeah. yeah, always national. And, yeah. you know, you get this insight into what everyone's doing. There's no real semi-finals or finals yeah. so yeah. and then that sort of always has come through in the jury yeah, yeah and you can see it in the work as well mm. the you know works from you know say new south wales work or queensland work or victorian work or western australia work that you can see that some work in some states just wouldn't have happened really mm. somewhere else i mean not in a in a weird sort of i guess formal way of it looks weird or something mm. but it's more just the attitude you know, that you can see in the work and it's actually quite different. And I was actually surprised that, for example, in Victoria, it seems to me <laughs> that there's actually a lot more interest in maybe non-architectural ideas being brought 
into architecture. Okay. And also maybe more room for more exuberant sort of decorative uses of colourful things and which is sort of sounds strange because you think, oh that should be Queensland, shouldn't it? Because we all wear black here. <laughs> um, but I think in Victoria or in Melbourne there's certainly more room for a postmodern okay. kind of attitude to yeah. architecture. And I find that in Queensland a bit and in New South Wales there's sort of more dedicated modernists. They're more um, paired back and they're more austere, kind of okay. simple, sort of robust. Yeah, and yeah. don't write in okay. all my friends in, like, you know, <laughs> in Brisbane and Sydney, please don't write in <laughs> and complain about what I just said. What's your sort of thoughts on, I guess, both the role of brick or where you see that going? You're obviously a brick lover, as I love to refer to as. <laughs> But where do you see the role of architects in what's happening with the world at the moment? Well, certainly one of the key things that I think there's been a lot of good initiatives going on is around, you know, ideas about what to do about climate change, so what to do about sustainability and not just freaking out at the um, hugeness of the challenge because, Mm. you know, we have all got ourselves into a really massive, terrible bind, Mm. like globally. And Australia has been actually embarrassingly slow in actioning anything. But, you know, instead of sort of worrying about the big picture, like, you know, that's too big for you to sort of handle. I think there's, in terms of architectural work, there is sort of a day-by-day practice thing that you can do. Like, what do you build in? Mm. What do you build? How much do you build? You know, all those sorts of things have long-term impacts because, yes, it's the resources that go into making buildings, which is huge. So, you know, the construction industry and the built environment are a massive sap on resources. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that we can obviously do is just be smart in the use of resources. Like, don't be wasteful. Mm -hmm. Like, don't be stupid with the riches that we have because in Australia we're so lucky to have, you know, the um, resources that we have. But just stop pissing it away. Mm -hmm. You know, actually value them properly. And they can be done in all sorts of ways in terms of the construction, but essentially it's actually got to do with how much you build, like what you build, and don't throw things away. You know, so I love the idea of recycling buildings mm. and adapting buildings. I love working with older buildings and essentially I just do residential work pretty much. So almost all my work is in working with existing buildings and mm. altering and Every now and then there's a chance to do an all-new building, but even then that sort of sits in quite often older suburbs, but very often working with older buildings. But just, you know, the idea of like don't demolish if you don't need to. You know, just don't go nuts because it's not, buildings are not a throwaway thing and we need to, I think, really get that into our heads and on every level of government we also need to make sure that that is actually in their heads. Wholesale demolition should never be allowed. If you want to get rid of something, there's going to be a reason for it. At the moment we have no reason. No one asks you. It's like it's your as of right to just basically put things in landfill. And the amount of resources that buildings take up, you can't do that. And it's, you know, fascinating what you're saying because it is being echoed by the new generation of architects. Yes. You know, we've interviewed them and they say the same thing rather than looking at a building and thinking, can we demolish it and rebuild it? Now it's more, how can we enhance it? or Yeah, how do we work with it? Work with what's there. And I think often it's actually better. I mean, I love the dynamic between like the old and the new parts of the building and that often it makes both of them better. Mm. And it's a lot of fun, you know, the, I mean, in terms of just design work, 
to look at the the relationships between these two things is it's part of what makes it really fun the relationship and I've heard people you know the the architect Carlo Scarpa of course mm. and people have accused him of like I mean as if you could accuse him of any design weakness but you know he does superb work but his best work is with existing buildings like altering and adapting and extending existing buildings and in terms of his best work it's like the dynamic between the two things and his response to that that kind of conversation between the old and the new buildings that really makes extraordinary work that he brings together where he's actually built a building from scratch I know I've read some people have been very critical of his work because they've gone he doesn't really know what to do here, you know? And so in some ways, some people suggest that he almost like builds a structure and then designs another one that responds to that one because he doesn't know how to, (laughs) where to go when it's a blank piece of paper. But also, you know, certainly in terms of houses, you know, living in a place that's just got layers and layers of like history and other times and other lives and other things, I just think that makes each place so much more interesting and fun rather than looking like a showroom Mm. that was made yesterday. And what would be your final thoughts, advice, (laughs) for building in brick and maybe entering the awards? Well, in terms of entering the awards, I would encourage everyone to. I mean, certainly for me, it was a real revelation in terms of entering the awards because I hadn't thought about doing it. Yeah. It just hadn't occurred to me. And it was actually one of the um, brick reps who actually said, oh, you, you know, this is awards program. You should think about, you know, putting it in. And he actually really, David Clasey, yeah. if you're listening, he really encouraged me to put the building in. And it didn't occur to me yeah. that it was that I should. And I think sometimes architects are not, they're not very good at seeing what other people might find interesting. I mean, I know it sounds really dumb sort of after the fact, but it didn't occur to me that other people would be interested in this house. Mm. And David was great in encouraging me to do that. And then so when we came to the first awards night, I think it would have been the very first time that we met you, Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about the awards (laughs) night. We were talking about this before. The awards night is a wild night. And I'd never been to one before and we were gobsmacked by it. But there's something about the Brick Awards which was so fun. Yeah. And Elizabeth, I think it's like you are definitely responsible. But there's a sensibility about it, which is actually really just the enthusiasm and the excitement about being part of the industry, celebrating, you know, the design work because they're design awards. But it's the link into the um, brick industry as well. So all the brick reps and the companies are there on the night as well. So you sort of share your tables like with all the other brick industry people. And that's really fun. Like we met so many people from all over the place and it's so much fun and I think in some ways maybe it's why it's more fun than other design awards because you're not just sitting just with the other architects yes even though of course that's fun because you know you catch up with your mates and that sort of thing but they're all your existing network of people you already kind of know and yeah when you sort of mix it up with the whole thing I think it's just so fun because it's also the sense of like well this is actually what our work links in with because you know the design work is the design work I mean it's a piece of paper until you, it becomes real. And these are the people that make it real. So the builders, the brickies, the people that manufacture the bricks, like the whole thing, all of that makes this thing that was just a piece of paper. And I think, you know, for my members and more importantly, thank you for acknowledging the sales reps because often they don't know what happens. You know, mm. they go in and sometimes, from what I understand, 
you know, an architect may not use that brick for three or four more years. Yes. Or yeah. for a project that doesn't yeah. take place for that long. Yeah. And for me, it's always been around how do we close that loop from when the brick is sent out, you yes. know, to when it gets introduced, to yeah. when it gets laid, to then yeah. it gets built, yeah. and then it's, as we like to say, celebrated. But yes. Thank you for being part of all of our celebrations. Of oh, no, thank you. And also for <laughs> celebrating the material in your designs. Thanks, Elizabeth. I mean, it's been um, fantastic to be part of the Think Brick family, I guess, in, in a certain way, because I think what was actually really fun about the Think Brick Awards was that what I didn't realise, you know, the whole thing of like I didn't realise anything until it sort of happened, is we then were able, yeah, to take people on tours and sort of keep in touch mm. with people in the industry. I mean, it's been great, you know. It's, it's really sort of felt like an invitation to be part of like the bigger industry out there well, that makes the work. Thank you for accepting it and <laughs> for being part of it. Thanks, Boo. Thanks, Elizabeth. See ya. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.